Um, it really is a privilege to have Secretary uh, Wilson here today. Um, I've had the honor to have had my career slightly intersect with her remarkable trajectory through the almost 20 years, I suppose. Uh, I first got to know the secretary when she was in the House of Representatives, and of course she was a star when she was in the House, uh, uh, Air Force officer, female Air Force officer who was in the House. And, uh, that her professional career has gone in many different ways since then. Most recently, my home state of South Dakota, where she was the president of South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, and it took uh, C4 to get her out of that job, uh, because I know how much she liked it, and I know how much they liked having her there as the leader. And of course, it, it's coming back to a, a really a significant leadership position in Washington. That's what it took to get Heather Wilson to come back Washington, and thank God that uh, she did. She's back confronting a range of challenging issues for the Air Force. This is not an easy time for any of the service secretaries. Uh, Secretary Wilson has certainly had her share of, uh, of challenges, and I've watched kind of from a distance to see how skillful she's handled these issues. And we're going to have an opportunity today to understand some of her perspective and insight, and she's going to share it with us very generously. Thank you for coming. Secretary, would you please, with your warm applause, welcome Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson. I knew that I liked Sean Hamry, and then uh, I found out he was originally from South Dakota, and I liked him even more. Um, it's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to be here uh, with all of you, and I and I wanted to also ta thank Todd Harrison, really for um, for uh, arranging this. Uh, uh, we had had a conversation about space um, several months ago, and we talked about possibly coming down and being being able to to talk more about the challenges facing the Air Force, uh, both both uh, uh, for the service as a whole and also in my capacity as the defense, uh, the defense Space Advisor to the Secretary of Defense. So what I'd like to do today really is to talk about some of the challenges that the Air Force is facing um, and, uh, and uh, what our major objectives are. And then really, I actually just came uh, from the first Space Council meeting, which the Vice President is chairing as a renewed Space Council in the federal government. It was out uh, at the Udvar-Hazy Center in front of the Space Shuttle. I thought they could get a dramatic setting, but they came up with the space shuttle. So it was, uh, it was actually a wonderful, uh, wonderful meeting this morning, and I'll talk a little bit about that in space. And then mostly um, we'll have a conversation and open it up to, to people's questions. Um, when I came back to the service, having been away from national security issues for, for about eight years, uh, trying to inflict calculus on 18-year-olds, I, uh, I uh, uh, one of the things I was surprised by was the readiness statistics. Um, in fact, when I saw the first chart showing the readiness of America's Air Force, I actually thought it was a mistake or that I wasn't understanding a change to the way we were doing this. Because in the, 19, in the 1980s, when I was a young officer serving in Europe during the Cold War, if somebody had put one of those charts up in front of our commanding general, the roof would have come off the building. But we, the United States Air Force, has been in continuous combat operations now for 27 years. And, uh, and the strain is showing. It's like a rubber band that's pulled to the, to the absolute limit. 
Uh, and we are much smaller than we were in 1991 when we, when we, uh, we went, went to, the, to the Persian Gulf to drive Saddam Hussein out of, out of Kuwait. In fact, in 1991, the Air Force had 134 fighter squadrons. Now, fighter squadrons is not everything in the Air Force, but it's at least one measure of capability. We had 134, and today we have 55. And yet we are much more active in combat than we were during, during the Cold War. So we are stretched um, to be able to win any fight at any time. So we have to restore the readiness of the force. That means, first and foremost, people. We are too small for all of the missions that the nation expects us to perform. And right now, probably the biggest challenge to our continued readiness is that we're operating for the ninth year in a row under a continuing resolution to start out the year. Nine years in a row. I believe we're now up to 32 continuing resolutions. Um, and, and what would be worse than a continuing resolution would be to a return to sequester under the Budget Control Act. The nation has to figure out a way to get beyond the Budget Control Act, find an alternative to the Budget Control Act, which has just not been effective for what it was set up to do and has caused devastating impact, would cause devastating impact uh, if we were actually to carry out the sequester. For the Air Force, a sequester would mean about a $15 billion cut in the service. That would mean that aircraft would fly in combat, crews would fly when they're spinning up to train for combat, and pretty much the rest of the Air Force would be parked on the ramps. I don't think the nation can afford that kind of risk to our national security. Um, and so we have to find a way beyond this as a nation. So restoring readiness is the first thing that we are focused on in the service. The second that was a bit of a surprise coming back to this is the amount of modernization that will take place in the Air Force over the next 10 years. And it's not just fighters. It is fighters and bombers and the nuclear deterrent and space assets and, and, and tankers. It's, it is across the entire Air Force enterprise because a lot of modernization has been deferred over the, since, really, since the end of the Cold War. So if we're going to increase the lethality of the force, we have to cost-effectively modernize the force. That means getting value from every dollar we spend and trying to make sure that we treat those dollars um, with the same respect as the people who earned them in the first place, the American people. The third area where we have a focus has to do with developing exceptional leaders. Um, the Chief of Staff and I, Dave Goldfein, believe very strongly that the culture of the United States Air Force is set at the squadron level. Uh, and squadron first sergeants and squadron commanders, if they are well prepared, if they are identified and developed, really make or break the Air Force. Uh, and in fact, if we have great squadron commanders and great first sergeants, it's almost nothing that I can do to screw up the Air Force. <laughs> because the squadron commanders and the first sergeants will take care of it and set the culture at that level. That means that we have to really focus on how do we develop our leaders for the long term of the service. 
fourth priority for the service is to strengthen our alliances because we're stronger together. The chief and I uh, went forward to, um, to uh, uh, the central command area of responsibility um, during August when, when uh, so Congress was in recess so we could escape as well and go to the Middle East and Afghanistan, Iraq, Jordan, Qatar, United Arab Emirates and, uh, uh, and Kuwait. And um, I, one of the things that was really striking was the closeness of the coalition in the fight against ISIS. And perhaps more than at any time since the end of the Second World War, having allies is really not an option for the United States. We need our allies. And, and we need them, and it, and it is a strategic advantage uh, for the coalitions that we build, that we're stronger together. You think about it, America's likely adversaries don't have that advantage. They don't have allies. We do. And we have to build coalitions that are really coalition at the core. So not, you know, it used to be that our version of, of a joint in the United States, a joint uh, for the, you know, the Navy air and Air Force air was, okay, you take the east half and we'll take the west half. That was our version of joint. That wasn't really very joint. That was kind of de-conflicted. Right? Um, today, we really do have a joint force and a joint tasking order and joint training and joint staffs and joint planning. We need to get that way with our coalition as well. So it is coalition at the core and we fight together. Um, that um, will make us stronger um, over, over the next decades. And the, the fifth objective um, that the Air Force has to really get back to its roots on is to drive innovation, driving the scientific and technical enterprise. A couple of weeks ago now, I announced that the, the Air Force will take the next ten, 12 months and do a, a very broad review of science and technology and what are the most important areas for investment in research by the Air Force and look also at how we conduct our research. Um, not just within the Air Force Research Laboratories, but in partnership with universities and other uh, federal laboratories, so that we figure out how we can, how we can um, engage the next generation of engineers and scientists on problems that are important, uh, important for the Air Force and the nation. That strategy um, should also result in, in new relationships, new structures, um, new, possibly new organizations and ways of doing business with respect to research. So, so the research environment has changed for the Air Force since Hap Arnold first did this in the 1940s. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, most basic and applied research was funded by the federal government. Today, there's much more research and development that's being done outside of the national security realm and we need to figure out how to very quickly incorporate that into the solution of problems uh, in the national security realm. Let me talk a little bit, so those are the, the five priorities for the Air Force as a whole. Let me talk a little bit about space um, because uh, uh, I spend actually probably about a third of my time as the Secretary of Air the Air Force focused on space across the entire Department of Defense. 
And one of the reasons, of course, is because we have some significant challenges there. Um, for the longest time, really since, uh, since the Air Force has been involved in space, which goes back to 1954, space was a benign domain, a domain from which we watched and reported. Um, in 2007, when China launched an, an anti-satellite weapon and destroyed one of its own dead weather satellites on orbit, it became very clear that it was going to be a contested domain. Our adversaries know how much the United States depends on space systems. And we don't, most people don't think about it all that much because it's really invisible to us. It's like the universal utility that we don't think about. But when it comes to communications, um, indications and warning, certainly intelligence and being able to watch the world, uh, something in the, the military calls position, navigation, and timing, uh, but for most of us really means the little blue dot on our phone. Um, GPS is provided by the United States Air Force to a billion people every day. Billion people use a GPS. It's probably the world's first global utility. And it's provided by 40 airmen working in a squadron outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Like average age 22, which is a little bit scary. But, um, but that, that blue dot on your phone is probably not even the most important thing that GPS does for you. I mean, it does a lot of things for the military. But think about the industries that are dependent upon that signal. And it's not just you know, Uber and, and, uh, and Lyft and Amazon and all kinds of you know, uh, FedEx, it is uh, the entire banking system. When you take money out of your ATM machine, um, the timing signal comes from the atomic clock on the GPS system. All stock trades and the banking system relies on that timing signal. So a huge part of our economy is dependent on what's done in space. But it's not going to be a benign domain in the future, and we know that. So we need to be clear about our strategic objectives in space as a nation. And first and foremost, we need unfettered access to space and freedom to operate in space. Space will increasingly become a common domain for human endeavor. And I think we're kind of at a turning point. Um, it was interesting to listen to people talk this morning at the Space Council. There are two things that are happening at the same time. One is a significant reduction in the cost of launch. So if you go from $10,000 per pound to $1,000 per pound, and potentially to hundreds of dollars per pound, that really changes the economics of doing things in space. At the same time, payloads are getting much, much smaller. Miniaturization combined with information technology are, are making you know, payloads go from the size of a small refrigerator to the size of a, a six-inch cube. So you put those two things together, and you will see a lot more countries, companies, and even individuals in space. The economics of it 
has changed, as has the technology. Some who are in space will be there for peaceful purposes, and some will not. For the United States, we're going to have to assume, as we do at sea and in the air, that there are both kinds of actors in space, and we're going to have to cope with that reality. So what does that mean um, for the United States Air Force and for national security space? There are some things that we need to do um, and some, some areas where we're significantly changing what the Defense Department and the Air Force are doing. First and foremost, we have to have a common operating picture of what is going on in space. Now, since the Air Force kind of got into the space business in the 1950s, we have provided the catalog to the world of all of the space objects. We, we actually catalog everything, and we check about every, at least every week to make sure that any satellite or piece of debris that's going around in orbit around the Earth, we know where it is. And if some things are going to bump into each other, we have all kinds of multinational agreements and memorandums of understanding to warn people. So here is the irony. China put about 3,000 pieces of debris into orbit when it, it, uh, in 2007 when it destroyed its own satellite. We track all of that debris, and we now warn China when their debris is about to impact one of their satellites. There's an irony there. <laughs> but that's one of the things we do is a catalog. But if you're worried about malevolent action in space, you need more than a catalog. You need near real-time situational awareness of what's really going on in space around you. So moving towards a, a more complex picture, picture of what's happening in space rather than just a catalog. The second thing that we're going to need is what we call um, uh, battle management or command and control. So it's not just enough to be able to see the picture kind of a, the, uh, the, the equivalent of the radar scope, if you will, that we all think of the FAA guys seeing. You have to be able to do something about it. You have to be able to take action um, if, if, things are, if things are going wrong. So, so you need to be able to have a common command and control sy system. Uh, we are building that in Colorado. It's called the National Space Defense Center. Um, it, uh, for the first time, we'll link together the downlink and control systems for our satellite systems that we operate. It's Army, Navy, Air Force, National Reconnaissance Office all together. Um, and uh, and we, we, we also, from there, warn. That's the place from which we warn commercial satellites, commercial space. Um, in the future, as we update satellites, that, that is going to be an open architecture system. And we're no longer going to buy satellites with exquisite kind of you know, science experiment control systems. We can't do that if we have to decide and act quickly. So you have to have a common system for command and control. So if it doesn't plug in to the common system, we are not going to buy it. So, so common battle, battle command and control. Um, and the third thing and with respect to normalizing space operations is the ability to create effects. We have to be able to defend ourselves. Um, we also have to be able, if we are going to deter the malevolent actions of others, to take offensive action if needed. So we're going to have to develop those capabilities in space.
So that's what I mean by that language of command and control, common operating picture, creating effects. For those of you who are wearing military uniforms, those words will be, will be well understood uh, because that is the language of joint warfighting. So we need to normalize uh, space um, from, a national security, from a national security perspective. The, the second area where we're focusing has to do with integration of, of space into the joint uh, arena. We do a lot of that now, but, but uh, on every air operating center around the, around the world, space has to be there. They have to be on the floor of the, of the joint operations center. Space has to be on the joint staff. We have to have all of our officers who are wearing blue uniforms more knowledgeable about space capabilities and how it connects to the other, uh, to the other domains. And the third area that, in addition to normalizing and integrating, is elevating space as part of the joint team. We have uh, created and stood up a deputy chief of staff for space um, on the air staff. Um, General, uh, General Jay Raymond, who is the head of US Air Force Space Command, is also now a joint, uh, has a joint title underneath STRATCOM, to, uh, Strategic Command, to be, a, to be the leader in joint, uh, joint operations. So we are elevating space as part of the, as part of the joint team. Um, this morning out at the Space Council, there were a number of interesting conversations about civil space and, and commercial space, uh, national security space. But one of the areas where we, we take this from the, the national security realm to the broader realm, I think, is um, how do we establish norms of behavior uh, in what will be a much more congested domain? Um, this is not on this will take some time, but it's not an unknown thing. This is not completely new. Anyone here who has flown internationally uh, understand, will, will understand what I, what, I think I'm, what I mean here. If you fly from New York to Paris, you cross through a completely ungoverned area over the Atlantic Ocean. In that area, there are norms of behavior. There are some, in some cases, international agreements on what altitudes people will fly at, who they will talk to at which point, um, and how we treat civil aviation flying on certain routes, and how we treat each other even as, as, uh, as military aircraft flying in space. There are similar, although though slightly different, norms of behavior that we call law of the sea. And in some ways, it's probably more developed because we've been at sea for thousands of years when, we, uh, when, when the rules for aircraft um, are only about 100 years old. So there are ungoverned domains in which we have norms of behavior. We have to develop internationally more norms of behavior in space um, as we have done uh, on the sea and, and in the air. That will mean customary. Um, law, but it also may mean negotiations with others on what are acceptable norms. I believe that we will also, as a nation, have to start facing the issue of what is our declaratory policy. And for those of you who think and work in nuclear deterrence, um, those words will be familiar to you. But what is the policy of the United States um, if another country 
were to attack one of our satellites. What would we do if a country attacks GPS? Or our command and control satellites? Or our indication and warning satellites? Um, there are countries who are developing the capability to do so. It's probably worth thinking through what we would do and what we say we would do and what we demonstrate the capability to do so that there is a deterrent effect before someone makes a decision that they might regret. Now, I don't know the parameters of what that policy should be, but I think we're at the point where we need to start thinking about what that policy should be and framing choices for policymakers before a time of crisis. Finally, just a final word about the Space Council this morning. Um, there, it, was a, it was a wonderful discussion, um, but in, and I'm sure all of you who are interested in space will kind of read articles and so forth online about it. But um, it's great to hear people talk about planning to go to the moon again as a station for going beyond to Mars. Um, and it is, uh, it's a, the, uh, the aspirational domain of space is something I think maybe we've lost along the way. I do think that space will become a common domain for human endeavor and not too far in the future because it's becoming affordable for more and more people. Think about some of the things that commercial and competitive space are potentially offering um, today that really wasn't in the offering 20 years ago. Um, the United States Air Force now doesn't build rockets, we buy launches. And our most recent launch out of Cape Canaveral was a SpaceX rocket um, that, uh, that launched and then recovered uh, using, by the way, GPS techno guided <laughs> guidance technology um, back on, on the pad from which that stage launched. That wasn't possible uh, 10 years ago, but it's being done by American innovation. It's an exciting time to be part of this enterprise, and I look forward to answering your questions. So. Well, I'm Todd Harrison. I'm the director of the Aerospace Security Project here at CSIS, and Secretary Wilson, I want to thank you uh, again for joining us here today uh, with your uh, excellent remarks. I want to start uh, with a few questions of my own, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience here. Uh, first question, you talked about in your uh, remarks about all of the major modernization programs that the Air Force has planned over the next 10 years, and of course some of them extend even beyond that. Um, you know, we sometimes refer to this as a modernization bow wave, although that's a naval analogy, so maybe we should think of something better for the Air Force. Uh, shock wave is shock probably wave. not quite right, but... Um, with all of those major acquisition programs that the Air Force is facing, what are your top acquisition priorities right mm. now? Mm. Um, the the F-35 fighter, um, we, uh, we're, you know, we've now got the first fully operational squadron at Hill Air Force Base that stood up, or, or full, first fully operational in September. So, and we're, uh, we're purchasing about 48 a year. The Navy is also purchasing some, and it's some multinational efforts. So this is a... This, uh, the F-35 really changes the game in air superiority because it's, it's a flying computer. It is, uh, 
it gives us the ability to see and connect with others in ways that we couldn't, couldn't before. The second is the B-21 bomber. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the ability to hold at risk uh, things which are potential adversaries value means that we will have to be able to penetrate and hold those things at risk. And so the B-21 bomber and then the tanker, KC-46 tanker, um, which should be started to be delivered here sometime in the next several months, I think. Um, and uh, you know, think about the challenges of operations uh, that we're conducting against ISIS today. I mean, the, the United States Air Force, since 2014, when ISIS declared its caliphate, we have put more than 54,000 precision weapons on ISIS. So the, 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 the battle against ISIS is a precision weapon battle enabled by exquisite intelligence. But every one of those fighters that's, that's over coalition forces um, is refueled probably four or five times on every mission. So there are 60 to 65 tanker missions every day up and down the Persian Gulf. It's a, they, we, are, we are a global power, but that means dependence on tankers. Yeah. So and those are the three. Well, and, and so the B-21, I want to pull on that thread a bit um, because, of course, it's a highly classified program. I know there aren't that many details you can give us, but any status update would be welcome. But also the number uh, of bombers. So the program started out saying 80 to 100 bombers. Now the Air Force is saying 100, maybe more. Just in the past you know, few weeks, uh, I know several of our sister think tanks around town have published reports, one at CSBA, I think one at CNAS, one at the Mitchell Institute. Uh, all making the case that actually we probably need many more than 100 bombers. I wanted to get you know, your thoughts on that, and is that something the Air Force is studying right now? The, uh, the, there's a national military strategy, national defense strategy that's being finalized, and the, the number of bombers that we need is really dependent upon the national military strategy. What are we being asked to hold at risk? Um, and what are we being asked to hold at risk simultaneously? That's, that's often um, where the pressure comes. Um, we, we have said publicly that we, we believe we need at least 100 B-21s. The real question is what is the mix beyond that and what's the right thing to do uh, beyond that because we have, the, we have the B-1, we have the B-2, we have the B-52, and then we will have the B-21. So with a bomber force you know, that's really quite small by historic standards, um, uh, what is the right mix? Um, for the, the things we're being, being asked to provide. So that'll really be driven by the final decisions around the national defense strategy. Okay, so maybe we'll hear something next spring. <laughs> I, you know, I would guess I, every year the chief and I have to go up and explain to the Congress what the heck we're doing when we present our budget. Um, my guess is that, um, that we should have a pretty good roadmap by then. Okay. Um, and you also talked about the readiness challenges uh, that the Air Force is facing. And I wanted to get your take on it. You know, it it's more than just readiness. Uh, and of course, a lot of this is driven by budget constraints. But you know, there's always a, a struggle between uh, capability, capacity, and readiness of the force. Uh, I think you can make a fair case that the Air Force has challenges in all three of those areas. Um, what do you think is the biggest, should be the top priority right now for the Air Force among capability, capacity, and readiness? If you have one more dollar, where would you put it? Right now it's on readiness because the readiness levels, I mean, the, we are being stretched so, so much um, that, uh, that it's hurting our readiness 
particularly for the high-end fight. Mm. And it's also causing huge problems with air crew retention and other things. So just as an example, um, I uh, was at a Al-Yadid Air Base, and there were B-52s there from, from Minot, North Dakota. And uh, they, were, um, they were supporting the fight against ISIS, everything from dropping leaflets to precision close air support, danger close air support from a B-52, which is just amazing how that technology has changed. Um, but I, we, were, we were standing on the wing, 120 degrees on the flight line at Al-Udid, and the, talking to the crew, and the crew commander said, said yeah, when they re rotate back to Minot, 10 days after they get back, they will have a nuclear surety inspection. That's for their other mi mission. So, so 10 days after coming out of the desert, not seeing their families for four months, they've got one of the most rigorous inspections that we do for aircrew. And they haven't practiced that mission in four months. We would never have done that during the Cold War because we were large enough to not put crews in that situation. And I, I said to the commander, I said, can you, I said, wow, can you, can you do that? And he said, what all our airmen say, we got this, ma'am. We got this. It is not fair to push our airmen right up to the point of failure because they are such lean forward, we got this people, because when we don't got this, when this town doesn't got this, we are too small. And I fear that we are pushing the force close to breaking. You know, ever since uh, the sequester took effect in 2013, um, we've been hearing all the services uh, repeatedly talking about all the readiness challenges they face and, and some calling it a readiness crisis. Congress, for the most part, hasn't really responded much. We still have the Budget Control Act. We still have constraints. Um, it, is there something that the military and the Air Force in particular could do better in terms of reporting its readiness challenges? Are, are readiness reporting metrics, are they just not good enough anymore? It's a little bit like the frog in the hot water, right? Um, if we threw him in the hot water, he'd jump out, but it, just get, it, it started in cold water and it just kept getting warmer and warmer. So I think people surge has become the new normal for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And, and yet we're now starting to see the symptoms of that. It's one thing to say that, uh, you know, it's six months in the desert and six months at home or three, you know, um, or, or, or six months in the desert and even one year at home and then back and forth. You can do that for a while. But if you do that for five or six or seven or eight years, people can't sustain, their families can't sustain it any longer. And, um, and I think we're starting to see the stress and the force. I think the other thing we may be doing better with Congress, although you know, honestly we've, we've, we've still got a ways to go, is explaining the nature of the threat um, that we're facing around the world. That it is, uh, uh, it's still a very dangerous world. And if we're going to protect ourselves and our vital national interests, we need to be able to get, to, to find an alternative to the Budget Control Act. The flip side, you know, if you, if you can't increase resources, the flip side is we could reduce our commitments around the world and reduce our deployments and uh, scale back in some areas. Uh, and, you know, then people wouldn't be deployed as much and they wouldn't be stressed and forced to choose between being fully ready for each mission. Is that something uh, that the administration is now considering? Because during the campaign, 
President Trump talked frequently about reducing our security commitments abroad and making our allies step up and do more for themselves. Is that something that the administration is still looking at? I think actually the fight uh, against ISIS and, and the fight, the, you know, the Iraqi people are taking back their own country from this vicious group and ideology um, with the assistance of the United States air power and intelligence. Um, there's, there's a wonderful power in that for the Iraqi people. Um, the problem for us is the Air Force is still heavily committed, um, even if we reduce the number of ground forces worldwide. So I think the, the concept is to be able to, to um, destroy these terrorists and these extremist networks um, to the point where local forces can govern in their own areas. Um, uh, it does take a lot of air power. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting that we're doing things that weren't possible 10 years ago when I left government with the, with the connection between very good intelligence and precision strike from the air. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's wearing our people out. Well, we've been in Iraq, as you said, you know, since 1991. The Air Force has been there continuously yeah. flying combat missions since 1991. Uh, do you think within this president's term in office we're going to see the troops come home and the local forces actually be able to take over for their own security? Be, I think it'll be conditions-based. And I, I, do, I would say, however, one of the reasons that we are doing an experiment with light attack aircraft, which is a new authority that Congress gave us to experiment, not just to always go through a very long procurement process, but to experiment. Um, and in March of this year, the chief of staff sent out a one-page letter, just said, we want to take a look at what light aircraft are available. Um, bring your year. Um, and uh, uh, within five months, we had four light attack aircraft ready for testing on the ramp at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico at White Sands at the test range. Um, uh, it's an experiment. But part of it is to say, OK, are there capabilities that allies could buy at a much lower price point that when you know, networked together can really improve the capability of our allies more? Um, yeah, we are training the Afghan Air Force. They fly the A-29. I met with them when I was in Afghanistan, um, helping countries to be able to, to, uh, to conduct missions themselves. Um, is, uh, is part of being a good ally and a partner. And, and if we end up buying some of these light attack aircraft, would that substitute for something currently in our inventory or for you know, new aircraft in another program we're planning to buy, or would that be on top of current plans? It's my view that it has to be on top of the current plans. Mm -hmm. But what it does do is help us restore our readiness um, because, you know, it's probably not, if, if we can, if we have a, a fairly low threat environment using a light attack aircraft um, to support in a, you know, against a violent extremist fight is much more cost effective and you use your F-35s for a high-end fight. So that means that both pilots uh, and crews are ready for the missions that they are trained to do. Uh, and so you can improve the readiness of the whole force globally, which is one of the concepts for us. But it can't be a substitute because we're already short. We've only got 55 fighter squadrons. And we're a global, for a global power, that is, uh, that's very small. Hmm. But you could buy multiple light attack aircraft for each F-35. We're not trading <laughs> them. And we can't, we can't do that. Um, 
We just can't do that. We have a, uh, we have a situation where uh, the average age of the Air Force aircraft is 27 years old. We have not been recapitalizing the Air Force. We've not been modernizing. Uh, and we are overstretched. And we're 1,500 fighter pilots short because we're, we, are, we are overstretched. We have to solve that problem or we will not be able to project power globally. Okay, I want to ask one more question before we open it up for questions from the audience. So get your questions ready and we'll be ready to bring a microphone around to you. My last question for you, uh, you talked uh, towards the end of your remarks about how we, we need to set clearer policy um, for how we're going to operate in space. And we actually had an event yesterday here um, rolling out a report on escalation and deterrence in space. So I want to ask you, who is the, who's the right person or organization uh, within DOD and the broader um, national security community within our executive branch? Who should be setting policy uh, for our escalation and deterrence options in space? There is a, a framework that's being developed um, and coordinated by the National Security Council staff. That it, this is one of those things that crosses um, many departments uh, and has to be part of America's national security policy, not just a Defense Department policy. Mm -hmm. And so, so, but I think what we're seeing um, in space tells me it's time for America to develop some of these policies more fully. I don't know what that policy should be. I'm not an advocate for a specific policy course at this point. I just think it's time we've got to raise this issue. What, is our, what are our rules of engagement in space in the same way that we have them at sea and in the air and on the ground? And how do we communicate those rules of engagement to others who are spacefaring nations? Okay, so I want to open it up for questions from the audience. I see one right here in the front, if you wait for the microphone. And please uh, tell us your name and where you're from. Hi, uh, Scott Massioni with Federal News Radio. Uh, you mentioned the need to build the capacity of the Air Force, also the need to develop leaders. Um, the Air Force recently uh, said that they would promote 100% of O4s. Um, can you kind of explain some of the, the thought behind that decision and if it was prudent to do that uh, in, in order to develop leaders and, and build capacity? Um, let me just, a uh, couple of factual ones. It was a uh, uh, pr promotion to captain to major, so from 03 to 04, I think. If I, if I got my O's right, my, I'm looking at my, there we go. Uh, so it was captain to major, and it was 100% of those qualified. So this does a couple of things. One, first of all, most captains already, in fact, I think it's like 95% promotion to major already. For qualify, for so so there was a 95% of those qualified were getting promoted. Um, when we look at expanding the size of the force, we're going to have to gradually grow it at those mid and upper levels as well. So we're we're going to need those majors if they are qualified. Now the other thing that this does, it puts the responsibility back on the commanders, the wing commanders and the squadron commanders, to say, okay, if we've got a problem child. We need to say so, and we need to counsel that member to find another line of work um, and not just kind of expect that the system is going to, you know, the machine is going to take care of that for us. Um, we need to be commanders, and, uh, and, um, and if we set that expectation, my experience is that airmen live up to it. Sure. All right. Other questions? We'll go over here.
Thank you. Uh, hi, Secretary Mark Selinger, Defense Daily. Um, this topic uh, came up at the Space, Space Council meeting. Uh, Elon Musk last week unveiled his concept for the BFR, uh, Big Falcon Rocket. Um, and one of the things it can do is sort of jump, hop to different places on the Earth and less than... minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was wondering, uh, it seems like there might be some military applications there for special operations, maybe others. Is that, what do you think about that, and is the Air Force developing anything comparable that you can talk about? Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I like about some of the innovation we're seeing spa in space and elsewhere is it's forcing those of us in the service to think differently about things, really change paradigms. And when we look at innovation, we're, we're trying to do that. Obviously, we watch very carefully what's being developed and what, uh, what, uh, what's available in the commercial market and, and change the way we think about things. Um, the, we, that was, you know, that's one example, but there, there are others. I mean, if you think about this, um, okay, um, uh, Amazon gets a package from their warehouse into the hands of the mail service, and I think there's only like two people that physically touch that package. They're almost a completely automated system. Why isn't our logistics working the same way? Um, how can we change the way we do business in order to get information faster, get technologies from the lab bench to the warfighter faster, spin technologies and ideas on? And we've got a number of things and ways we do that, um, and other ones that are in the works. Um, one of them that uh, we're, we're doing with Special Operations Command and their Softworks, which is their innovation lab that they do that's outside the fence with people wearing you know, normal clothes, not uniforms, working with young people on innovative technologies. Um, we are now starting up AFWorks next to University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and probably two more locations this year. And we're sponsoring Thunder Drone. I think that's what they called it. Um, sounded cool, anyway. But the, uh, we basically are, uh, uh, they're renting a huge warehouse and saying, bring your drones, uh, last drone flying winds. And under the federal acquisition rules, that qualifies as a competitive procurement. No rules, no specifications, no analysis of alternatives. Let's think about innovation in a different way. So, so the short answer to your question is we are watching what's happening in the commercial space industry and always seeking to identify ways and capabilities that can help with the security of this country. I'm really glad to see the innovation that we're starting to see across the board. We need to be faster in adopting things that will make, make a difference to the security of the country. All right, so I have a question here. Hi, thank you, Secretary Lee Jung Greco, Flight Global. Um, going off of space, I was wondering if you could tell me um, how you uh, plan to balance the current combat aircraft modernizations that you have with all of these um, sort of ambitious plans for space. Um, specifically, I'm wondering if you have any plan right now for the A-10. Um, is there something that you can do, some sort of uh, you know, urgent requirement uh, for the wings so that you don't have to end up grounding those aircraft? Uh, we're, uh, some of our A-10s have had their wings redone. We actually monitor the wings pretty closely like we do most of our other aircraft. We think that there are some that are going to need to be re-winged probably 
about five years from four or five years from now, and we're going to have to figure out what to do. Um, uh, right now, we're trying to figure out what to do in our budget about those things, and also, you know, what kinds of priorities we put on what kinds of space capabilities, and on the space capabilities, trying to be more agile and resilient, distribute. Um, you know, how do you defend something? Well, one of them is you don't put single big things that are absolutely vital up in space. You put multiple things in multiple nodes so that, it, that the network, the architecture itself is resilient. So it's a change strategy on how to put capabilities up in space. Some of it, uh, some of it means there are, there are, there are trade-offs there. Um, and we're trying to tee some of those up in our budget and make decisions about those. We do those every year. I mean, we're doing one now on battlefield command and control, um, where we're trying to, you know, we've got one large aircraft that we, that we developed in 1991. It's a great aircraft, great concept, but technology has moved on from that. Um, and everything now is a sensor. If an F-35 can send its picture and its radar uh, image to another aircraft, and we're also pulling all that down onto a ground station in the Middle East, why can't we do distributed? You know, we can, we're meeting only 5% of combatant commander requirements for battlefield command and control today. Can we do better than this with a network? Um, we're asking ourselves those questions, and that does mean moving money among programs to try to meet more priorities. It's probably not a complete answer to your question, but yeah, there are always budget trade-offs. Is JSTARS a direct trade-off for space? No. no. Um, JSTARS is about battlefield command and control. So JSTARS is an airplane that has a synthetic aperture radar on the belly, um, and it has a lot of Army and Air Force people in the back that are kind of supercharged air traffic control uh, that look at that radar and they they can see things moving on the ground, and they tell A-10s where to go. And um, uh, so it's battlefield command and control. They're they're uh, they're only they're very limited. They fly around in a you know in a racetrack pattern near a battlefield, and they're very important to people on the ground and to getting air support where we need it. Um, but they're only meeting five percent of the requirement. They have to go back and refuel. There are only a limited number of airframes. At the same time, over, over the ISIS battlefield today, we have space assets, we have flying aircraft, we have unmanned aircraft, we have seaborne radars, we have ground-based radars, and we have the ability to integrate information that we didn't have in 1991. Can we pull all of that information to give a better picture of command and control and be putting that on the ground instead of in the back of an airplane? Um, that's the question we've asked, and we've asked the engineers to say, no kidding, what would it take to do it that way, and can we meet more of the requirements of the Army? So that's, that's what we're trying to do. Okay, thanks. Right. You had a question here? Samira Kassam from Virgin Galactic. Is the Air Force reconsidering its policy on ICBM reuse? So that is the conversion of U.S. military ballistic assets into space transport vehicles to launch payloads? No. Okay. We are uh, we're replacing our Minuteman missiles, so we're going to go to a new ground-launch uh, ground ground ballistic missile. Um, 
our Minuteman 3s are very old, um, very hard to maintain. And as far as I know, we have no plan to use those for, for space launch. Our space launch strategy today is not to buy rockets or spec out rockets. We purchase launches. So, and we get a much better value uh, for the dollar spent by a competitive space launch market. And we just go out with a request for proposal and buy launches um, at, at a really good cost, really good price. Well, and so I, I think what you might have been getting to is that, you know, what the government has done in the past, and it's not so much an Air Force policy as a government policy, is taking some of the already retired uh, ICBMs and reusing the, the rocket corps' first stage uh, orbital sciences is one I've, of the companies that's used them for then space I may launch. have spoken too soon. I, I, it hasn't been an issue. We haven't reconsidered any policy. I know that, at least in the Air <laughs> Force, this has not been a, we're not doing any policy reconsideration there. Okay. Good question, though. Question up here in the front. Thank you. Uh, my name is Paolo von Schirach, president of the Global Policy Institute. Uh, a broader policy question, uh, which is, goes beyond, I guess, uh, the missions that you have uh, eloquently described and the challenges, uh, which is uh, ballistic missile defense. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we know what's going on, the North Korean problem, the, the, the soon to be acquired capabilities, we think, of launching uh, and delivering warheads into the United States. The question is, we have uh, obviously underinvested in, in this area for many, many years. How do you see this going forward? Is, you see a chance of uh, developing systems and capabilities that will uh, be able to face these challenges? Do you see this as, as a priority within the national <coughs> security uh, concerns of the Trump administration? Thank you. Uh, while missile defense is really, it, it, the Air Force is connected into it, we don't have primary responsibility for it. The Missile Defense Agency does. But yes, it is an area of high priority, and it's, it's driven by the threat. We also know that our missile defense systems are limited, and they're, they're, um, uh, they're, um, uh, if we are at the point of having to decide whether to uh, use our missile defense system, it is America's worst day. And we don't want to ever get into that situation. So our responsibility as the United States Air Force is to seek to be strong so that we deter that from ever happening. Question back here. Hi, Valerie Insano with Defense News. Um, I wanted to ask about JSTARS as well. A couple weeks ago, you said that the Air Force would be ready to make a decision on the recap program as early as October, and it's October. So um, I want to check in and see, you know, is that still the plan? Are you guys there yet? And what is informing that decision? Is that budget considerations that are that are driving this decision to be made now, or? are you going to have a plan of an alternate framework for uh, the battle management uh, command and control mission? Um, I've still got a lot of time left in October, forever, it seems like. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, um, and the, the reason for the timing really is that we, uh, and why we didn't just kind of make a decision, we really want the engineers to look at this. Is this possible to fuse the data? Do we have the technology developed and ready or is this something that's, uh, you know, we don't want to do some hand-waving over a PowerPoint chart. Really show us that it is possible to do it this way and what is the timeline uh, by which we could do this. 
Um, so so uh, that's the scrub that we asked them to do. And yeah, yeah, it is cycled with the budget in that we, you know, we know that we have requests for proposals out there. We've got people making decisions. We, we should be able to make a rapid assessment and a decision so that we can, we can explain to, to the Secretary of Defense and the, the, uh, the, the budget process as well as, as the other branch of government what we think is the best thing to do and lay that out for them um, and for, uh, for a decision. Yeah, what are you doing for Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I wanna, we've got time for one more question uh, back here in the back of the room. Thank you, Secretary Wilson, for spending your afternoon with us. Uh, my question relates to uh, General Hyten. Two weeks ago was here in Washington, a forum similar to this. He was talking about recapitalizing the space infrastructure and the threats that you highlighted um, very articulately. The comment he made was, in the past, General Schriever with ICBMs or Admiral Rickover with the Nuclear Navy were very single-mindedly focused on addressing the development of capability. Who is the uh, Bernie Schriever or you know Admiral Rickover for the United States Air Force? And with your comment to Todd about your priorities, um, space wasn't one of them. Um, does that? sort of fall into Chairman Rogers' concerns about the Air Force leadership in this area. It's interesting, because I thought space was in all of them. Uh, our mission uh, is uh, to organize, train, and equip air and space forces. So, so the chief, you know, and I, I think this is when, when, when the Joint Chiefs are together, or when any group of officers are together in a joint war fighting headquarters. The airmen here have all this stuff on their shoulders, these badges and things. Nobody outside the Air Force, a lot of us inside the Air Force, we have no idea what that stuff means. What everybody else sees is U.S. Air Force. And we're the ones since 1954 who are responsible for everything from you know, 100 feet below the Earth in missile silos all the way up to the stars. That's our responsibility, and we own it. So the, the, uh, the chief of staff is the chief requirements officer for space. As it happens, two of our four-star generals, and there aren't that many in the Air Force, you know, when they, uh, I think I've met more generals in the last four months than I ever met in my life. Um, but uh, we had, uh, uh, they have a conference they call Corona where all the generals come together and it gradually skittles down to just the four-star generals who are there. Um, there are about nine four-star generals in the United States Air Force. Two of them are space officers. I will tell you, General Hyten and General Raymond are 100% uh, are, uh, focused on space. They are tremendous advocates for it. Um, and um, we're proud of what the Air Force does in space. Uh, and, uh, and it's part of who we are. So, so it's, um, um, it's something we're committed to. Uh, it's about where I spend about a third of my time, not only for the Air Force, but for the Department of Defense as a whole. And we take it very seriously. All right, uh, our time is up, and I wanna thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today and answer all of our questions. So please join me in thanking Secretary Wilson. Thank you.